Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. This is Praz the Sandman, injecting my magic potions to the deepest corners of your mind through the radio waves. And we figured it was only appropriate we bring some female leadership back, especially after politics. And that's all you're going to hear from me about it this week. But this week, it's time for everybody's favorite... Journal Club! Yay! And because, let's face it, I think we all needed a happy week. The theme of this week is just science stories that made me happy. That's it. There's no other cohesive plot tying them together, but I hope that they will make you happy as well. So, llamas. Llamas, alpacas. I was actually surprised enough to find out that llamas are not, in fact, alpacas. That was... Except Ooh. when they suffer from, and I kid you not, berserk llama syndrome. Greatest animal sickness ever. Yes. Like, oh, you've got a mad cow? <laughs> well, I've got a berserk llama. Who would win? Well, a mad cow or a berserk llama? Well, llamas may be large and fluffy, but <laughs> I learned that their antibodies are not. Their antibodies are itty bitty and tiny. And because of these tiny llama antibodies, we may have taken another step on the path towards a universal flu vaccine. Uh, the flu vaccine that we get only treats, what, the top two or three strains that are most common for that year. So there's a lot of other strains that are out there that you may not even be vaccinated against. So when there's something like 30, 40, 100 different versions of the flu virus out there, and our vaccine covers the top five that hit Australia the flu season before, it's important that we try and come up with a way. So the question is, why? doesn't the flu vaccine, the existing one, cover all those different versions of the flu? And that has a lot to do with our immune system. So our our immune systems have a special set of cells called B cells that make antibodies. They're like special ops training camps for your white cells. And these antibodies are Y-shaped proteins. So, you know, throw up your hands like you're about to do the YMCA and you're an antibody. And (laughs) actually, if you want to reenact that, you can play a version of tag where one of you is the flu and can run around however you like. And the other one of you and everyone else playing is an antibody and throws their hands up, spread in that Y-shape. And you all just try and tag and catch the flu person. It's really hard. There's only a couple ways you can grab onto someone when your arms are spread out. Like just that. like in real life where the only there's only a couple of sites onto the antigen where the antibody now, can actually bind. The reason this is so difficult is the flu virus keeps changing that one section 
where the antibodies can grab on. So sometimes it changes it only a little and our antibodies with the help of the flu vaccine can still recognize and attach it. And other times it changes too much and it doesn't stick. However, alpacas and camels have tiny, tiny little antibodies where instead of a person forming that Y shape, llamas have more like the A shape, or actually it looks like an uppercase I. And because this antibody they produce is a much different shape, it can hang on to a different part of the flu protein, meaning it can recognize a part that the flu hasn't learned how to frequently switch up and change yet. Is this the same spot in all Well, the changeable regions, yes, Hmm. are pretty much the same across viruses, but what they change to varies. So the researchers created an antibody that's kind of a mashup of four different llama antibodies. So I picture it like a tiny little llama ninja star. This isn't technically a flu vaccine. This is more almost like a gene therapy because vaccines work by exposing and training your immune system. And we're not exposing ourselves to llama flu or berserk llama syndrome or anything else. What we're doing is taking this llama antibody, throwing in some extra instructions to make the antibody to the flu look like a virus. And then you spray that virus nasally and your body gets infected with instructions on how to build flu antibodies. Meaning even if it's hard for one person to catch the flu with those big Y arms, if you have 30, 60, 100 people all going after one flu virus, you just overwhelm it with sheer numbers. Now this was tested on mice. So the researchers exposed different group of mice to different strains of the flu at lethal doses. And mice were given either a nasal spray, which was a placebo, in which case they died. And ones who got the llama antibody nasal spray um, actually all managed to survive right up until, you know, we assassinated them to study their bodies. But they survived the flu. I have to wonder, that raises a question. How applicable is this? I how are mice antibodies different from human antibodies? You know, well, that's actually a great point. And the beauty of this being more of a gene therapy than a vaccine means it doesn't matter whether or not it's effective at fighting mouse flu virus or those. What happens is they were testing the concept of, can you inject these antibodies with instructions to start making more antibodies? So it relies on your own immune system and you're infecting it with a basically a power-up. You're giving yourself, when you get this shot, it gives you a level up to your immune system and teaches it how to start making more antibodies rather than a specific single antibody. So it does it on a larger scale, and it better equips yeah, it to handle different types of scenarios. many seasons and many flu strains. So that's a lot better than just being able to cover hmm. four strains. This could mean better protection against a range of flu viruses, and ultimately if everything goes according to plan, mean not even having to get a shot every single year. Although that is what we encourage you to do until this technology becomes widely available. You know, this could be a very big groundbreaker in medicine. Like a lot of people dismiss the flu or don't take it too seriously because it's relatively common. But um, a lot of people die every year from the flu. It's deadlier than Ebola, for example. In terms of sheer mortality, the flu has killed more people than guns, nuclear weapons, or almost any other infectious disease when you look at it over time. 
any individual flu probably cannot compete. Let's move <laughs> on to our next story, which is equally impressive in terms of the scientific advancement, as well as equally ridiculous when you hear the inevitable headlines. Mm-hmm. Jean, this one deals a little bit more with at least diseases okay. you see more commonly. So would you like to kind of do the intro for well, our next story? So as you know, malaria is a major issue globally. You know, we talk about how dangerous certain animals are, you know, ah, crocodiles are so dangerous and bears and so on and so forth. But really, mosquitoes kill way more people than pretty much any animal that you and partly due to uh, malaria, among other uh, mosquito-borne. And so with my travels to Liberia and the Congo and um, and so on, I've had to mm-hmm. take malarone, which gives you all these fun side effects, and then, or doxycycline or, you know, something to that effect. You get the craziest dreams, I will I say the, that. Um, and sometimes it's really fun to have dreams. Uh, I was just saying, like, dreams, you know, it definitely people. becomes a big deal, especially as you travel oh, more. Yeah. I think pretty much oh, any time I've yeah. left the country, I've had to take some sort of malaria prophylaxis. So how do Viagra yeah, yeah. and malaria fit together? Are you picturing, like, little mosquitoes with noses bobbing up and down? Because that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> Right? If your mosquito is after you for more than four hours, call your doctor. But no, uh, <laughs> malaria or Plasmodium falciparum, the actual parasite that causes malaria, is spends one very important part of its development hiding within human red blood cells. This can lead to almost sort of a cyclical type fever that you see as the blood cells get infected, develop, grow the plasmodium, and then burst as more plasmodium is released into the body. So the blood cells with them are very soft and malleable, which lets them hide from the spleen. Because the spleen's job is to remove old, useless, firm, or dead blood cells from the rest of your circulation. There you go, folks. If you learn nothing else today, that's what your spleen does along with some immune-related things. Because it bypasses the spleen's ability to filter, that's how malaria gets all throughout your body. But researchers were able to put a stop to that process with Viagra. Not because they were all getting laid and were able to finally concentrate on their research, but because when they learned that the enzyme inhibitor that gives the pill its popular effects stiffens blood cells that are infected with malaria too Hmm. so now you have these soft floppy blood cells it's a great choice of malaria and you give them a dose of viagra and they stiffen right up and then the spleen says hey (laughs) it is a magic pill (laughs) well once they're stiff stiff, they can enter the spleen and then filter them out so malaria is not happy about that because it wants to be able to hide and instead it uh, stands to attention, I suppose you could say. It, on a purely biological level, this has a lot okay. to do with cyclic AMP signaling, but I'm a physiologist, not a biologist, <laughs> so we'll just link you to the Number. paper in PLOS, P-L-O-S, if you're interested in specifically how it deforms those cells. But now we can add, let's see, Viagra has now been used to treat not only erectile dysfunction, but pulmonary hypertension, which was its original purpose, altitude sickness, and hamster jet lag. You know, I think that's how Viagra got discovered as a um, as a treatment for erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I think wasn't it wasn't that the story? Like it was sent out to people as a trial for pulmonary hypertension, and then they found out if it wasn't working, so they asked <laughs> for them back. But none of the participants were sending their Viagra I'm breathing back. great, Doc, and my sex life's never been <laughs> and better. And then they discovered why. Also <laughs> helped my jet lag. Me and my hamster sleep through the night. Like, I think we need to extend this trial a little bit longer. Uh, 
speaking of malaria, and I won't touch on it too much, but I recently saw just talking about like cute animals going back to llamas and stuff like that. I recently read an article where um, a group they were trying to to I, actually it was the Gabon. They were trying to study whether or not yeah. dogs could sniff out um, patients, <laughs> in particular pediatric patients who had malaria and who didn't. And they found that they could actually train dogs to sniff out, um, you know, kids who had malaria and that they thought that this might even be something to be used like, you know, in border control or something like that, particularly in places where malaria had been, um, uh, you know, wiped out and things like that. So I thought that was kind of a... That's one hell of a multitasking dog. They could have weed, they could have malaria, they could have a fruit. I don't know, you know? And the only way to know will be, I don't know, um, maybe slip them some Viagra and see no, if they no, get no. sick. No, no, no. This is, anybody who has ever come into the United States has, has come across these fruit sniffing dogs, which I think are pretty, pretty fascinating anyway. Dogs can sniff, dogs can smell some pretty interesting stuff. Apparently they can even smell whether or not people have lung cancer. I, I read another, you know, mentioned, saw another article. Yeah. Yeah, so we've covered in the past a few articles on dogs being trained to sniff out Ooh. cancer, um, which, although it conjures yeah. up images of you know yeah. illness although, detectors you know, honestly, at the entrance to the hospital, someone walks cool, in like, and the dog's like, "Oh, we got a cancer alert! The hospital, Get him over yeah. to here." Although you know, honestly, if you think about it, wouldn't it be kind of cool? Like if you're sick and you're going to the hospital, and first thing that greets you is like a cute little Labrador dog who's like you know hanging out. Quite, quite welcoming. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm being, being ridiculous. But. Definitely improves patient morale. I could see that. <laughs> you, uh, your your initial consultation will be with Doctor Spot of our Hemonk Department. Who's a good medical professional? You are. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so. And with that, we can move on to the next story <laughs> about another another thing I think we'd like to see in hospitals, although not nearly as much as uh, adorable cancer-sniffing doctor dogs. I'm a little bit of a video gamer on occasion, and there's been a couple great ones released, one of which is Assassin's Creed Odyssey that allows you to tour ancient Greece uh, as it was during the time of the Peloponnesian War. Let's you visit islands in all their pristine glory, learn a ton about history, and murder prominent historical figures. Now, if there's one thing that almost everybody knows about ancient Greece, it's I the know. Trojan horse. How did we miss the, miss the segue? We went from Viagra to talking about Trojan. Yeah. Scientists Trojans. say they've managed to create a new antibiotic that works like a Trojan horse. It's made by a Japanese company, the Shianogi Incorporated, and it was already in human trials of about 450 people used to treat urinary tract or kidney infections that showed the drug was as effective as current treatments. Now, that's a little bit of a mixed bag. As effective means, okay, well, we've added one more, but it's not really doing anything new that's helping us and we're rapidly losing our ability to use antibiotics as we develop resistances so what makes this drug such a trojan horse well instead of wood iron is used to smuggle an antibiotic into bacteria the researcher dr simon portsmouth who led this research noted that during an acute infection 
one of the innate responses our body has is to create an iron poor environment. And there's a couple reasons for this. One of the things your body does when you have an infection is raise the internal temperature, trying to first kill off the invading cells with heat. That's what a fever is, your body responding naturally. The next thing they do is a lot of your body needs, you need more blood cells, both red and white. And a lot of those cells use iron as a building block. So it tries to shuttle all the iron into creation of more cells and also deprive bacteria of iron because bacteria also need to use iron to build and grow. So in an acute infection, your body temperature goes up and your iron content goes down, but bacteria will then try and eat even more iron. So we've now created sort of this new black market for iron and the bacteria are running around trying to get it wherever they can. So scientists gave this new antibiotic, Cifidoropol. It, it rolls off the tongue just like Achilles, right? An like ability Achilles, to bind right? to iron and bacteria will eat it up and go, ha ha ha, you can't deprive us. <laughs> and then at night when they're sleeping, the Cifidoropol jumps out of the giant you know, cell and stabs all of them to an amazing soundtrack of Greek chanting. Or so I assume. Yeah, and actually, whenever you look yeah. at the, um, I mean, this, it sounds this, like it'd be a Greek uh, medication. hero. Yeah, and actually, whenever you look at the um, this this uh, medication for uh, u- urinary tract infections or, or bladder, I'm sorry, bladder infections or kidney infections, it even um, it was not only non inferior, but it actually performed a little bit better than the medications that we used um, for the the usual urinary tract infections or or um, kidney infections. And, and really interestingly, I think in this particular study that was shown in the Lancet was that, um, the, you know, it wasn't your normal healthy people, you know, say like, um, you know, young 30 year old woman who has a bladder infection. No, it was, it was actually people who, um, you know, who have had multiple infections or who have had resistant infections and things like that. And even with, um, these kind of more, you know, more severe infections, um, this particular antibiotic did better, which is really good because like, like uh, Josh said, we're reaching a state where um, we're running out of antibiotics, um, you know, for some of these very resistant organisms. Um, and another thing that they mentioned was that this particular, um, you know, this Trojan horse kind of um, bypassed the way that these particular bacteria usually become resistant to medications uh, or usually become resistant to these antibiotics. So um, I think it's a pretty, pretty interesting breakthrough for, for um, you know, infectious disease you know, treatments. I'm hoping that this is not a solo tool for this one alone antibiotic and that they can now study how to kind of get other antibiotics to use bacteria's own pathways against them and that we can find other antibiotics to bind to iron and sneak in or even other foods. (laughs) But the good news on this is that, like I said, it's already in human trials. So we know that this works and it's one of the best trials, a double blind, randomized, non-inferiority study. I'm not going to go into the statistics because, frankly, they bore me to tears. But, again, on behalf of Dr. Santosh, who loves this stuff, this is one of the highest levels of reliability a trial can get to the point that everyone's going to look at this and say, yeah, that was well done and we can believe those results. Whereas some of the other studies we've talked about on the Occasional Journal Club, we bring up not because they're 
the strongest science, but because they're out there pushing the boundaries and sometimes you have to fail before you can make a discovery. So with that, that's our hard Absolutely. science. This is sorry. Um, but we're going to move on to something a <laughs> Not little the Viagra bit story. lighter. Definitely um, a big uh, step forward. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was our hardest science story. <laughs> and honestly, it's this is something that keeps a lot of biologists awake at night. When is the next pandemic, right? We've talked about the Spanish flu. We've had bird flu. For non-flu ones, we've had an Ebola scare. And, you know, this is something that, Jean, you could comment on a little bit more, both. Yeah, most commonly, I, I, I research Ebola, but I've also been, you know, involved in a number of other um, uh, pretty interesting diseases that, you know, easily could be used to, to um, just become a pandemic. Um, just if one sick person comes across the border or this or that and spreads certain diseases um, like Ebola or you know, Nipah virus recently and so on and so forth, even though they're not at quite as, um, even though Nipah is not necessarily as infective as Ebola and things like that. But, um, but I know that because people do travel so much, it, um, it becomes scary to think about what would happen if um, a sick person were to come, you know, to your country and potentially spread their infectious, whatever it is. It's a good, scary political talking point, but how real right. is it in terms of, of infection? Because we've all had this idea that, you know, we're overdue for another big pandemic. And without trying to take away a healthy respect for the spread of disease. It happens sometimes, right? <laughs> I think it's important to point out that new diseases don't come out of nowhere mm. unless Maybe are, we like melt some Arctic ice and find some our, dinosaur uh, flu, but sure. most of the time, new but. right, right, right. I'm sure Russia's already oh, like digging totally, up some yeah. mammoth with Indoor like the next zombie story. virus, one of those. Right, that was that that book or movie out of Africa. Mm -hmm. was about you, disease, there's nothing probably. more romantic than Ebola. <laughs> my heart it bleeds for you. Also, yeah, my romantic. eyes and possibly my other muscles. We were just talking. So most new diseases tend to evolve out of previous <laughs> related strains of viruses or bacteria. The new disease may differ from the old one by just a couple genetic mutations, and that's how it kind of spreads. Right. Which means that if you previously were exposed to a disease, you may have some slight degree of immune resistance when a new one comes around. Now, on a grand scale, this is things like chickenpox, where if you get it once as a child, you almost never get it again until or unless it causes a reactivation of a related virus in your older years, zoster, uh, herpes zoster. Um, there's other ones where, you know, if you have been somewhere and had, you may be less susceptible to catching it because your body already recognizes its previous ancestor. So this means people previously exposed to a first strain of any new disease, whether it's a flu to Ebola, may have a slight degree of immune resistance when a newer, deadlier strain comes up, so they'll be less likely to catch it, or if they do catch it, to die from it. It's your body's own natural vaccination. Hmm. And part of the reason we haven't seen these devastating pandemics we keep being warned about or why none of them seem to kind of peter out may be due to the fact that people are traveling more. 
because most of these hugely devastating outbreaks happened to communities that were isolated for a long time and were then exposed to a brand well, new pathogen, that never like smallpox with US, Native Americans you know, or dysentery on Pacific um, Islanders. Well, luckily that never became a pandemic in the U.S., even though it did become a pandemic in, the, in West Africa. I mean, one, you know, one question we could have is because um, the West African outbreak occurred in West Africa where there had never been Ebola. Is that one of the reasons why it could have been bigger? I don't I don't really know, um, since it had typically been more common in the Congo and stuff. I, I think that that that's probably stretching, stretching that a little bit, but but still. Well, yeah, it's it's a little bit, but not that much. So Robin Thompson, uh, a researcher at the University of Oxford, did a lot of mathematical modeling of what factors affect the spread of a theoretical new virus in a world with megacities and mass air travel. And they look at, you know, the number of cases creating cross immunity, meaning if you've got three or four versions of the same infection floating around a city, because maybe I went to one part of Africa where there was Ebola and Pras went to another and Jean went to a third and there's four kinds of Ebola in the city and one of them's a super Ebola. All three of us are going to be slightly more resistant to the one we've encountered before. And by extension, if the new fourth super Ebola has any pieces, it's evolved from any of the three that we had, we could also potentially be slightly immune to that. And if we all hang out together, we train yeah, I mean, each other's abilities it, to have antibodies. Everybody's and fight probably back. heard. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, remember back in everybody's probably heard of the Spanish flu in 1920. It killed over 50. Was it 50 million people? Like a ridiculous number of people. That was, you know, a huge pandemic. And since that time, we really haven't seen stuff like that. And that's probably. At least these authors, um, you know, guess that's probably also likely because of just exactly what you're talking about, Josh. Um, I mean, remember how everybody was so afraid of the H1N1 flu and it, while it definitely, you know, made its mark, it didn't end up being the pandemic that everybody thought it was. And that's pop, you know, possibly because we've been exposed to other different, you know, um, slightly related uh, cousins of that particular flu and things like that, that may not have led to a particular, you know, to a full out pandemic or anything. Or epidemic. I do want to stress what um, Josh had said earlier as well. Um, we should still, in spite of all of this, well, uh, um, wrong, while it is reassuring, it, we should also still have that healthy respect for the spread of disease as well. And Are just because we may have that? a little bit of extra immunity, it's not to be convinced is not to be confused for being invincible or anything or being around sick people and thinking, Oh, nothing's going to happen to me. Um, you can certainly still get very sick from any of these things, but. Right. And when they do this mathematical modeling, that also is taking into account variables like vaccination yes. rates in areas, uh, general protective hygiene. So there's, it's more than just a jet setting lifestyle, but the more travel you do, the more exposed to, lots of different regional and local viruses you are and the stronger you make yourself. And and another point to make also is that, you know, different viruses have different effects. Like Ebola has a mortality that ranges between 40 to 80%. So you really don't want that virus, but 
the cold or the common flu, um, you know, while they can definitely be dangerous in certain people, for the most part, you get it, you get sick, you get over it. And so what these guys talk about with air travel, making pandemics less likely, it might not necessarily apply to something like Ebola, where, you know, um, where we're typically not exposed to it. And it is a very highly mortal um, uh, disease, but it definitely applies to things like colds and flu and so on and so forth. So, you know, yeah, I'm just saying, so, so the, so what these guys talk about with air travel, making pandemics less likely, it might not necessarily apply to something like Ebola where, you know. Yeah, quit whining um, about your Ebola, walk it off. Exposed to it, and it is a very highly mortal um, uh, disease, but it definitely applies to things like colds and so on and so forth. So, you know. Let's back that up just a little bit. And speaking of things getting backed up. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. I was wondering where this was going. Oh, that's right. It's been a little bit. It's been at least a few episodes <laughs> again, since Josh. I've been able to exercise my potty mouth. Stronger. And it's about time to get your poop in a group for those of you who prefer the Disney version or get your shit together because we're going to talk about constipation. Constipation is one of the most common complaints that people end up having. It's right up there with back pain and headaches. Uh, it affects about 15% of the population at any given time. Most of the time, we give the advice, eat fiber, exercise, take the occasional laxative. Sometimes that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, sometimes that doesn't work. And I feel like we spend a lot of time here on Travel Medicine warning people against the yeah. dangers of diarrhea and all the suffering. And we never give fair play to the Absolutely. other side. You know, it's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about, just like with diarrhea, because they're embarrassed by it. But it can the lead to a lot, of, a, um, a lot of sometimes serious or uh, issues down the road. Impacted. Like, honestly, having, having constipation can be a serious source of chronic acute of chronic pain that people have a very hard time dealing with. So finding new ways to treat it that do not involve shoving something up there from the outhole or <laughs> or taking a laxative that will leave you feeling worse than when you started is probably a really good business idea. Mm. Now, here's where we get to the fun part. An Israeli company, to address this very problem of constipation, an Israeli company, Vibrant, has developed capsules that vibrate in the large intestine to stimulate contractions and move your digestive products along. Uh, And we'll go into this a little bit more. The basic principle is very similar to some of the pill capsules that they use in endoscopy, uh, which is a pill with a little camera at both ends that you swallow and goes through your intestinal system, taking pictures (laughs) along the way, like some terrible tourist on the worst vacation ever. But this capsule is a little bit bigger and vibrates along the way to shake loose all that poop. I, I do wonder how it feels as it's like shaking up your insides, you know, like what, what, what does it feel like? I don't know. Well, huh. Satish Rao at Augusta University in do the actually, U.S. Do you actually see it vibrate before you swallow it? Or... In two clinical trials yeah. that involved 245 people with chronic constipation. Know. 
So all of the people were instructed to swallow five capsules a week for eight weeks. So this is not like a one and done. This is a lot of it, it kind of makes me think of those old insides, like, you know, Motel like, 6 vibrating beds where you drop in a quarter and then you get this like <laughs> shake it like you swallowed a capsule. <laughs> so five you capsules a, a week for eight weeks and they were told to take each one before they went to bed at night. <laughs> um, so... We were just talking about Malarone causing interesting dreams. I wonder what these shaking, vibrating pills do to your. Do to you. We would have dreams about these, you know, vibrating motel beds, and all oh. that goes along with it. Oh, what if you took the two together? Shaking nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> the capsules were set to vibrate. Some wild times. For one or two. <laughs> two and a half hour periods during the 24 hours they were ingested. This must have been a lot of fun for the programmers. <laughs> uh, and they programmed them because I they couldn't they keep an eye on everybody's various intestinal tracts, so mm-hmm. they had to be timed. Well, no, no. It was, it was a remote detonation, as it were. And participants who took <laughs> vibrating capsules at the end of the study had twice as many bowel movements per week as those in the placebo group, which tended to occur very shortly after the vibration periods. Now, they were told to take this before they went to bed at night, which means in the people who it was working, they were kind of being shaken awake going, oh, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go right now. Um, No major side effects were reported, and it's going to be presented at the upcoming American College of Gastroenterology (laughs) meeting. And sadly, John and Praz, most, most, but not all, participants were unaware or unable to feel a vibrating sensation in their digestive systems. Oh man, I kind of I was kind of hoping that they were having like poop quakes or something. I don't know. I guess, you know, <laughs> it's much better for the patient that way. I... <laughs> well, well, don't get too disheartened. This term I did say most participants. They didn't give us the numbers on how many, but that means there's at least a percentage of people who get to feel their poop just shake, shake, shake it off. Oh, wow. So there's good vibrations. You get to feel the vibrations. How many other songs can we ruin for you? Hey, that would be a big thing. I have some patients who have these chronic um, myelopathies, which means basically they have these um, these diseases that diseases that is, affect the spinal cord, and they have horrible constipation, and it's a major issue where you know you don't go for I don't know over you know once in over a week's time or something like that, and like you're saying, leads to lots of pain. It's it's just terrible. So you know if you can take a poop pill that shakes it out. I don't know. I might, I might be uh, prescribing these for some of my patients. That's pretty cool. Interestingly uh, enough, I also see a lot of this um, when I was doing my chronic pain clinic because <laughs> constipation is a major side effect of opioids and narcotics, and especially in this day and age where so many people are abusing opioids and narcotics. This pills. is something that this is a huge source of uh, discomfort. That is one teenage people, trend you know? I could get behind. Um, now, just a few brief words. We have covered a lot of this, and I always encourage people, despite the horrible sound quality, to go back and listen to our very first episode, <laughs> Have Runs, Will Travel, because we talk a lot about bowel movements and what's normal and what's not. Um, you can also look up the Bristol stool chart, one of my favorite medical aids to refer to. And 
it is totally okay if you don't have a bowel movement every single day. Everyone's a little bit different. The point is that you should have regular bowel movements, not that you should be committing yourself to, oh, if I'm not going at least once a week, there's something terribly wrong with me. So practice good bowel health, eat fiber, drink water, (laughs) go hula hooping if you don't have access to a vibrating pill and cross your fingers that in three years time, something impressive will be coming out the pipeline. And uh, that's it for this week's articles. Um um, yeah, so uh, I guess my tip, if you happen to want to travel to the Democratic Republic of Congo, make sure to uh, get your Ebola vaccination. I got mine. Um, as um, many, over 25,000 people have been vaccinated for Ebola, um, given this recent outbreak that is going on. And it's now the largest that the DRC has had. Um, and of course, this country has had over, uh, it has had 10 Ebola outbreaks, meaning that it's the country with the most Ebola outbreaks, it's, but it's now reached the, the its largest, um, the largest outbreak that has occurred in its country, which is uh, with 319 cases. And that is not, you know, doesn't compare to what happened in West Africa or anything like that, but it's still, you know, it's still worth noting. Um and I was there actually to um, to help um, start a randomized control trial for Ebola therapeutics um, that largely were developed based on the recent outbreak in West Africa. So, so hopefully, good things in the pipeline um, are to come. Um, you know, even for this this pretty devastating disease. To go to Kinshasa, which is in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. You can literally look across the river, across the mighty Congo River and see Brazzaville, which is the capital of the Republic of the Congo. And this is the only place in the entire world where there are two capitals, um, two capitals of two different countries that are separated only by a river. They're basically facing each other, you know, separated by less than a mile, only separated by a river. So there's your, there's your factoid of the day. And what was really interesting when I went to travel to the Depo- uh, sorry the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I was actually required by our United States Embassy to get a visa in addition to the DRC visa, um, a visa for the Republic of the Congo, just in case I might have to um, uh, leave the DRC in any particular urgency, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, anyway, we'll just leave it at that, but... But that's that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and (laughs) feedback. So if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with links to all the papers and sources from this week's episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, you guys, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps other people find the show. It makes us feel loved. And our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels, everyone.